Hello, and welcome to another episode of Coffee and Comics. I'm Todd A. I am Taylor Drask. Hi, Good Todd. Good morning, Taylor. <laughs> A fine West Coast morning to you, sir. Yes, we are in the same time zone, although not the same city. Sadly. No, I am in Portland, Oregon this week or this weekend as well for Design Week. Um, I've been wanting to come to it for a while. And one of the uh, one of my partners at my, my agency I run is based here. And so I thought, let's, I'll use some frequent flyer miles. I'll come on up and we'll go to Design Week and attend all the cool stuff and hopefully have some meetings at the same time. But... In addition to that, it also lets me come. This I consider Portland sort of the motherland of, of comics. Um, you know, Image is here now. I think Dark Horse was here or is here. Like, there's so many like Floating World is here. Portland has probably per capita like the the most awesome comic shops all in one. You know, vicinity all in one sort of you know square radius or square mileage or however you want to. I can't I can't do math this morning. Anyway, it's it's a wonderful. It's per, like a mecca. Per capita, I guess. I guess. Yeah, it's um, it's an amazing city for comics and graphic novels. So I was like, I definitely wanted to do a show this morning while while live from here. Sort of in and the spirit. In the spirit, yeah. Because you'd asked me, you're like, hey, should we record? I'm like, heck, yes, we should. I'll be, I'll literally be in the motherland. Like, we need to, we need to do it. And I had a a chance yesterday to go to um, I would say the my three favorite shops here are Bridge City, um one that I can never remember. I think it's something dreams. And then the other one is floating world and floating world is uh, downtown Portland. And it has the distinction of being both a amazing indie shop, but also a, a indie publisher. So all their stuff is in the store. And then they've just got the best, like for somebody like me who usually goes a little more indie more often than not, like it's an amazing just curation and you'll see stuff that you haven't even heard of before. That might be your new favorite thing. Um, well, so I spent about an hour and a half there yesterday and, had to leave before I spent too much money and couldn't bring it all home. Do you want to mention any of the things that you purchased? Or are you saving that for a future episode? I'll mention them and I might review them too, but I'll mention them just so that we have a, a reference point. Um, I grabbed a, so it's, it's kind of a, it's, it's perfect representation of what floating world has. Um, there is a humanoids release and humanoids. For those of you who don't know is a um, European publisher. They tend to get like, usually all the Jodorowsky stuff is on there. They've got just a bunch of really cool Europe, you know, heavy hitting European names uh, writers and artists. So they put out what's essentially an, an anthology. Like it's, it's, I didn't know they did this and I think it might be the first one they did it, but it's called the tipping point and it's a humanoids anthology by some of their biggest artists. And it all kind of uh, focuses on um, that concept of the tipping point. So I can't wait to, to crack into that. There was a really cool little indie pick called I'm not here, which looks gorgeous. It looks like the art from the uh, book here, which I've reviewed before. Um, but it's a, it's an actual story. It's not it's not by the same artist, but it looks a lot like that. But it's an actual story, and it, it looks like it it might uh, it might break my heart. So I'm gonna save that one for later. Cool. I grabbed grabbed a couple single issues, and then the other thing I grabbed, and this is this is kind of uh, um, very much a me pick, but it's a thing called or it's a book called Why Art by Eleanor Davis, and it's uh, published by Fantagraphic Books, and it's sort of a I become more and more interested in these like is in comics as poetry. So I would say the book here, which I just referenced, um, oh. a lot of people rag on here. And I think when you, when you consider it as, as comics as poetry or graphic novels as poetry, it works so well. And I love it for that reason. Well, I'm seeing a lot more of those kind of pop up and Floating World has a ton of them. And this one's definitely that same thing. It's kind of a, an examination of art um, through 
the medium of graphic novel, but it's very much a linear kind of poem. But it really just kind of talks about what art is and could be and sort of just really re-engages and re-inspires you. So I was like, I had to pick this up. So is it is it sort of a, an explainer, kind of like Scott McCloud's uh, understanding comics? or Not in the comics? same – I mean, it, only vaguely. Like, okay. Scott, McCloud, like that, Scott McCloud's understanding comics is an academic book, I think, first and foremost. Like, you would – that's the book you – if you were taking a college course on comics, that is the book they would assign to you. Um, it, it, and, and for good reason. It's an amazing, amazing study. And for anybody who is really interested in getting into the nuts and bolts of how comics work, please pick that up. This is less that and more of like, this is just art in general, right? So it's, it's, uh, it's all like some you know, basic, very simple drawings with a lot of text on the side. And it kind of, it flows more like a, I, I can't even think of a comparison, but it, it talks about like, you know, like visual art and like, you know, there's, there's one story about this woman whose art was just kissing people or telling them that she loves them. And like, that was her, her expression. So it kind of walks through. In fact, on the back, it just goes, what is art? You know, why art? What is it? Who is it for? What is it for? These are questions that have vexed scholars and historians and makers of art and lovers of art since the beginning of civilization. What color is art? Can beautiful art be ugly? Can ugly art be beautiful? It just goes into like all those questions and kind of explores them in a really simple sort of poetic way. So it's not a, it's not that, I mean, Scott McCloud really dissects it. This is more, this is more just like a love letter to art told through the graphic novel medium um so it's kind of it's it, there's there's a lyrical kind of quality to it that i really like and it's kind of a it's a sub sub genre that i think is finally picking up speed in fact floating world even like had their own section called like you know comics as poetry and i was like oh, per- oh that, wow. that explains it and that's and they had actually had a copy of here on that wall so i was like well this this really sums it up well and i'm gonna start using that more and more because it, it really there's a certain grouping of books that i could never quite wrap my head around in terms of how to explain them and that really, I think that really does it. So, Very so yeah. Cool. yeah. Well, if there's another thing that Portland is known for, it is coffee. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and heroin. So, well, wait, uh, <laughs> really? Heroin too, huh? <laughs> um, which of those are you trying this morning? And if it's Starbucks for either, you are <laughs> fired, I'm certain. Yeah, and then we're going to have to get news. No, no, it, it, fortunately not. Thank God not. Um, it, I decided to skip the heroin this morning. Um, just, you know. I mean, it's a downer. You don't yeah, want to. Yeah, yeah, no. No, I'm, uh, I, I'm actually, so I'm staying with my, my lovely friends, Pinky and Laura, at their house. And uh, they always have a good stash of coffee uh, lying around. So I, uh, I just filled up on that. I don't even know what the origin or the beans are. I just know it's strong and awesome. And uh, I'll just give, uh, since it's, that's a vague answer, I'll give a little shout out. There's a coffee shop here in Portland called Dragonfly, which is my absolute favorite coffee shop. I mean, there's, Portland's got, you throw a rock, you're going to find an amazing coffee shop. But Dragonfly is its own special blend of just wonderful stuff. And they had a, uh, a cardamom vanilla Whoa. cappuccino that I had yesterday that was just unbelievable. So I'll, I'll give a shout out to that. Nice shout out. <clears throat> I, uh, I, I, I'm throwing you a curveball this morning. I'm not even drinking coffee. <laughs> well, then you're fired, sir. I, this is the last Coffee and Comics episode. Goodbye, everybody. It's been fun. I'm, try- I'm trying to change the name already. Uh, no, I've got a gunpowder green tea. Ooh, that, well, that works. Yeah. That's the same. That's, that's, a, that's part of the coffee family. It's a distant cousin. I hope so. It's actually delicious, uh, although I made the error of uh, fixing it, having a couple sips, and then right before we started, I ran and brushed my teeth and came back and was like, oh, <laughs> don't note to self. 
don't drink this tea uh, directly after brushing teeth. So um, if we're going on a date, is this is this a coffee? Is this a green tea? Does I mean, is it gunpowder's in the name? Do you do you feel the do you feel the blast? I, I haven't gotten the kick. There's a um uh. It, it, the one I got was listed as a medium caffeine. So, okay. uh, you know, um, but it, you know, maybe this is the way to start my day. So mm. we'll see. maybe, maybe I save the coffee for like an afternoon uh, jolt snack. Something. I don't want to be an elitist. Like tea is a perfect, I mean, like in fact, uh, uh Dazbog coffee, which is largely a Colorado based place always had um, gunpowder tea in their offerings too. So it's, it's a perfectly acceptable. Substance. All right. Cool. Yeah. Well, you know, again, we don't want to change the name. So I'll just, I'll, I'll make sure I honestly, my, um, my reasoning, well, it was just besides laziness, I guess is the reasoning. I also all week kept waiting. I was trying to think of what's a new, uh, roaster I can try for my mm. coffee this week mm-hmm. and did not decide on anything until about 11 o'clock last night. And then of course thought I'll get up at like seven. <laughs> I'll wow. drive over there. I'll just get myself a coffee, but I'll also get, you know, uh, a roast and then I'll be ready for next week and I'll be able to talk about the coffee I got. And then at, you know, seven o'clock, I thought, no, I'm just going to lie in bed for another hour or so. <laughs> so we'll just change the name to coffee and comics and tea occasionally, but also wine. <laughs> well, <laughs> coffee and comics with tea and tea. Um, Ooh, I like that. Yeah. So, uh, tea. Explain this show to people. What do we do here? So on Coffee and Comics, Todd and I sit down and each week we review one graphic novel uh, or series or comic that is interesting to us and uh, share it with you guys. And we don't know what each of us, what the either is going to pick. So there's some surprise and intrigue for us uh, as hosts. But the whole goal is to help you guys listening pick you know, new stuff that you may not have heard of. Maybe there's a book you've been wanting to get your hands on. You're just like, well, shoot, I need, I need somebody to tell me what to expect. This solves that problem for you. We're kind of, I, I jokingly refer to us as the, uh, the kids at the end of reading rainbow. When LeVar goes, you know, you don't have to take my word for it. That's when we step in and we tell you about a book. And then we yeah. also tell you about some coffee too, that we're drinking and uh, have a good little time. So think this is like, you know, we, we like to record these in the mornings. We like, you know, people, maybe that you're listening to this on a weekend. Maybe you're listening to this on a new comics day. Usually it drops on Wednesday. So, you know, pick us up, you know, listen to us. Maybe before you go into the shop, we can give you a couple things to, to consider. And, and hopefully you, uh, you expand your reading horizons. Yeah, I was just at the comic book shop yesterday and um, doing that thing of like, I, there was nothing particular on my list. And I was just scanning the shelves and Hopefully we are the show that will give you some ideas for when you're doing that yourself. And I love, by the way, that, that feeling, I'm glad you did that. Cause I, it's usually the last couple of weeks I've been in a shop. I've had a list. I'm like, I need this and this and this, right. It's such a great experience to just walk in and not know, and then walk out with something that's like, just, you had no idea what it was. You don't know what it's going to be. You flip through it. You're thinking like, this might be cool. And then you, uh, you get home and it's like, this is my new favorite thing. Like that, yeah. that's the experience that I try to aim for every time and is actually the experience that leads me to my first book choice, Todd. All right. How's that for a segue? Huh? <laughs> <laughs> nice. I had, a, I had a similar one that I was going to try on you if you didn't. Ah, yeah, Go save, for it. Save next week. So um, I, for those of you who don't know, I got uh, really heavily into comics and graphic novels around 2014. Um, and at the end of 2014, I uh, was in the local shop in Rapid City, South Dakota, which is fantastic, by the way. If you're ever in uh, the Black Hills, please stop by. It's a great little shop. But I'd walked in. And I was just like, I'm going to pick up a few things and walked inside and seen. And on that day, I picked up a, a one shot. I, I looked at the cover of something and was and was so intrigued by the cover. And I flipped through it. And it just like everything about it just 
really spoke to me. I'm like, I'm going to grab this. I don't know what this is, but it, it'll be interesting. And uh, read it over Christmas break and absolutely fell in love with it and ended up buying the first three trade paperbacks basically the same week because I was obsessed with this thing. Wow. And it's a, it's a series I have name checked so many times on this show that I figured it was, it was high time I actually review it properly. And that is, of course, East of West. Yes. Volume one, <laughs> The Promise, written by, once again, Jonathan Hickman. And uh, more importantly, I think in this case, is art by Nick Dragota, or Nick Dragata, as I like to pronounce it. Yet to figure out how he pronounces his name. But um, it's Dragata, actually. Dragata. So. You actually saw a panel yeah, with him, didn't you? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So Nick Dragata, perfect. Um, I, I, I mentioned him in particular because the art on this thing is so specific and so just it really appeals to me. We've had episodes in the past where we talk about, you know, I, there are books I appreciate, but I just don't like the art, so I really can't get into it. Um, another Hickman book, The Manhattan Projects, is actually one of those. I love the idea. I just I don't like the arts, and I just mm. can't get into it. This one, East of West, though, is not that. East of West is like it's drawn and colored in a way that just is exactly for me. So let me give you a <clears throat> quick little summary. It debuted in March of 2013. And as of this recording, they're on issue number 38, I believe. So it's been running for quite a while now. I think they're up to volume seven on the trade paperbacks. And then there's a couple omnibuses as well. Um, we're just going to focus on volume one, because as you get sucked into this, it, the twists and turns are, are plenty. Basically, the premise is it's a sci-fi Western set in a dystopian version of the United States. And the fate of everybody rests with the four horsemen of the apocalypse. So we'll come back to that in a second. The tagline, as Hickman has kind of conceived it of East to West, is the things that divide us are stronger than the things that unite us. And that, you know, he came up with this in 2013. Just think about how apropos that is now compared <laughs> to even 2013. And he goes on to explain the end times are imminent and we all hate each other too much to come together and solve our problems. Our final destination is imminent and as is the apocalypse. And then in the face of all that despair and gloom, somewhere there is still hope. So again, 2013, um, this, you know, and this was relevant then too, but I mean, just think about the climate that we're in now in 2018 and just like this, I, I had forgotten that was sort of the tagline. So as I was researching and putting together my notes for, for this episode, I was like, oh my God, like this is, I almost want to go back and reread it all again, just with that sort of in mind, like thinking about where we are. As far as the summary goes, um, Basically, you know, it, it's a dystopian America. Everything, the history of America is the same up to the Civil War. And at that point in this alt timeline, um, a, uh, instead of the Civil War ending, a, 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 meteor, a meteor hits what's essentially Missouri and just wipes out, you know, like a hundred mile radius. And there's this, you know, you know, this big meteor hits. And at that same time, essentially it throws everything into an alternative you know, reality where the Confed the civil war never ends. The Confederacy, essentially it's, it's stalemate. So the Confederacy becomes its own country. The, the union remains its own country, but it's, you know, just the original, you know, union. So that kind of the, essentially the Northeast, um, Texas, of course, becomes its own country. <laughs> Uh, what was really intriguing to me was the uh, the free the slaves that freed themselves or, or were freed rallied and created the uh, free kingdom of New Orleans. So the the African American population kind of congeals and forms their own thing, and it's the kingdom of New Orleans is very Wakanda like. So keep that in mind. We'll come back to that. A new interesting twist is China during this time. So China invades the West Coast. 
and sets up the PRA, which stands for the People's Republic of America. So San Francisco becomes like the new Chinese capital. And it's, it's really cool. And in, in some of the shots, um, you know, the Golden Gate Bridge exists, but it's got, you know, decisively Chinese architecture kind of on it, you know, the, those swooping kind of you know rooftops and everything, um, which is especially interesting too, because I'm in the Northwest right now. And you kind of think like, what if the Northwest is, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of like, you know, things you would find in China and Japan, you know, you know aesthetics and, and environment and topography, you know, you find in the Northwest. So it's kind of interesting considering like, you know, what if the Chinese just invaded and took it over? The most interesting thing to me about this alternative timeline, though, is that Red Cloud, uh, uh, Indian chief Red Cloud, unites all the tribes into one. He kind of does the, the Genghis Khan thing and unites all the tribes into one giant tribe and they form what's called the Endless Nation. So they kind of take over what's, you know, the, the Midwest and, you know, kind of the, you know, South Dakota, Minnesota, you know, where, where you see a lot of uh, American Indian tribes now, like that's, that's where they, they, that whole territory is basically theirs. And I'll come back to them in a second too, because they're the most, to me, they're the most interesting aspect of the story. Um, that's sort of the, that's sort of the, the setup. And that kind of occurs in volume one, that occurs in like the first four pages <laughs> so you get like this crash course of these like all these amazing scenes and images you're like oh my god like i you buy into this world so quickly because they just kind of they, they tee that alt history up and then they they refer to it a lot but that sort of really tees it up and then they show you a couple quick pages of sort of the the main storyline which is on the same day that this comet or this this meteor impacts the earth um, there's this treaty that basically is like this armistice that basically, you know, there's this treaty that's signed that basically says, okay, the civil war will just, there'll be a standoff. We're just, we're in our permanent armistice. Texas was a signee on that. Um, you know, the, uh, the, uh, kingdom of New Orleans, all, all the countries I just mentioned, all the nations represented, um, that, you know, in this new version of the United States or, or ununited States, they all, they all signed this armistice. So are they are they all sort of seen at this point as n- the nations of America? They don't use that term specifically. Okay. Um, they are their, they are their own countries. It just happens to exist on the continent you know, on the you know, where North, where America is now is like it's all subdivided in these ways that I just described. Um, but when they sign that armistice treaty, at the same time there are two simultaneous but independent prophecies. On one hand, you have this guy named Elijah Longstreet, who was a soldier with the Confederate Army under, under Stonewall Jackson. He wrote uh, a part of this prophecy, and then at, as soon as he's done writing it, he collapses and dies. Red Cloud, who united the, you know, the Endless Nation, at that exact same time, he um, also has a, a vision and transmits his portion of the prophecy orally. Um, and then as soon as he does that, he collapses and dies. So you have these two chunks of these, of these, these two kind of prophecies that line up with each other that were given to two separate men for 50 years, you know, 50 years goes by and these prophecies were, um, kind of referred to as the message and, and a, a sort of a cult, you know, arises around these prophecies because they refer to the end times, but they, they, they are largely incomplete. So for 50 years, people are like, hey, these two guys had these, these interconnected prophecies, but it's not complete, but they talk about the end times. Well, then in 1958, Chairman Mao, um, you know, who's the, you know, who is the head of the PRA or the, you know, the, the People's Republic of America, he writes an addendum in his little red book, which is the third piece of the prophecy. And then he dies. <laughs> so you've got these three pieces that kind of form this like, you know, like Zelda Triforce looking thing. And it's, it's a complete book of the message, and it refers to the end times and how the end times will be ushered in. 
and so again, this cult and these kind of like these people who who follow the end times, they it, you they grow in numbers. It's kind of like Scientology. They you know they they all sort of kind of. <laughs> I can't, I can't let an episode go by without referencing that. So they kind of form and they, um, the, at the crash site of the meteor, you know, enough time has passed where, you know, enough of the radiation has gone and everything. They built this giant kind of temple to the prophecy. Cause that's, that site is where they sign the, um, the armistice treaty. And then that's where the, you know, the, the message is kept. So that sort of sets up the world. The story itself for volume one begin and it, all everything I just described happens in like the first six or seven pages. It's just, it's like, it's just relentless. It's amazing. The story begins where there's kind of like this um, Stonehenge looking thing in the, in the old you know, American Southwest and the four horsemen of the apocalypse return. And they are there. There's like, but they return as children and there's like a, they're, they're specifically colored. So if you've ever seen like a red guy and a blue guy and a green woman or a green girl, those are the horsemen, but one of them is missing. So they, they appear and like the fourth kind of little pedestal where they appear is, is empty. And they're looking around. They're like, where's death. And you come to find out that death, who's, who's the white one. He never, he never left when they sort of, you know, the last time they were around, um, they all, you know, they all vanished and uh, he was supposed to go with him and he didn't. So he's still, in, you know, he's still a grown man and he's wandering around his death and he's got, um, he's kind of a vigilante and you, you don't, at the, as the story starts, you don't quite know what his motives are, but he's sort of our, our, our antagonist or sorry, rather our protagonist for this story. And you kind of like see the world through his eyes largely. And he's accompanied by two mystics from the endless nation. So then they're also like pitch, pitch white, which if you listen to the last couple episodes, Jonathan Hickman has this running theme where characters who appear in all white, all white skin, all white hair, all white clothing represent death in some way. He's got it in Black Monday murders. He's got it in the dying and the dead. And now, in you, as you referenced, uh, so, so precisely death himself is, is this kind of presented in this way. Yeah. So and seems- you mean, you mean literally like the, uh, whatever a- white is, is it the absence of all color or the, uh, the collection of all color? It is like, it's not, you're, you're not making an, like an ethnic, not Caucasian. <laughs> yeah, no, not, yes. no color, it, like yeah. actual color, white, like, you know, as it, you, pure white, yeah. not Caucasian, not ethnically driven, like just pure as a character, pure white. So it's, it's kind of this thing Hickman's doing. I don't, I don't think there's some grand scheme to make all these worlds unite unless some da- you know somewhere down the road he wants to pull a Stephen King and do a dark tower and that that would be awesome but <laughs> right now I just think it's like I think it's just a little easter egg he he does in each of his well, stories I, I think there's such a cool thing because I you, you know I've read uh, volume one and there's such a cool thing about death when you meet that character because it is very much like you mentioned this is a sort of uh, old west or western sci-fi mm-hmm. it's a western sci-fi in the future um, and uh, it is like he's playing off that trope of like a stranger comes to town. Yes. The start of so many Westerns. And also that other thing of like, you know, the, the, the stranger all in black. Yeah. And in this case, the stranger shows up and he is like, literally like his clothing is white. His skin is, is white. Like everything is the same white color. And then he has these two, uh, members of the endless nation with them. So it's, um, what an, um, that, what an astute observation. I never even thought of that. Yeah. He's the, he's not the man in black. He's the man in white, yeah. but he's not like a good guy. You know, it's like that. Right, it's, right. it's subverting that Western trope even more. Like, ah, I, I never even thought about that. That's great. Yeah. I mean, that scene when he walks into the bar, the, the, like the first one, like that is, that to me was just uh, the culmination of so many Western you know, yeah, things coming yeah. together right there. It's like literally the saloon doors swinging in the background. 
And he's awesome. Like death as a character is incredible. Like if they ever make this as a TV or a movie, then if they don't cast Josh Holloway, who played Sawyer and lost, if they don't cast him as death, then something's wrong with the world. (laughs) Like that's who I imagine talking. Like he even kind of looks like him. It's crazy. You know, a lot of people will say, Oh, he looks like Clint Eastwood. I'm like, yeah, but that was maybe in the, you know, in the sixties, but like this guy, I mean, go Google Josh Holloway and then go Google like, death and it's like they're the same damn guy like i can't it, there will be no justice in the world if that doesn't happen anyway i, I, I could go for a nikolai costa or waldo Ooh, that you know what that's so a, it's sort of the wow. rich man's josh holloway <laughs> you're so right oh my god that would work too yeah, sawyer, so, sawyer is just the poor man's jamie lannister right <laughs> i can't well i can't argue with that that's again astute observation <laughs> i'm uh i'm at your i'm at your mercy so so he the whole volume one kicks off with him as you said walking to the saloon and and you kind of the story starts with him, and it progresses at a really nice clip. You, at, you know you follow him, but you also get to see different parts of uh, you know you get to see kind of through his eyes. He he sort of introduces you to the other characters. He's the way you get to see um, the leader of the pra. It's kind of you know Mao's great great you know or like or grandson or son, and then his great granddaughter um, eventually take over the pra. You get to see death. Uh, you know face the uh, the president of the union um and it, there's the whole first part of this volume one is built on kind of this vendetta that that death is on and you get yeah. to learn what happened to him you know why he probably didn't disappear with the rest of the horsemen maybe some of the horsemen um you know betrayed him uh in some major way and you get a really good sense of the mythology of why he you know why he's on this quest what he's after you know who he loved at one point who betrayed him um, and it really humanizes him pretty quickly, which is awesome. You get to like really feel like this isn't just a monolith character. It's a really multidimensional guy who's, you know, trying to, he's after something specific. I don't want to spoil a lot. And there's an honestly, like y- you'll read volume one and it, it, you didn't necessarily do this, but like, if you're like me, you read volume one, you're like, I need to read volume two now. And so I cranked through those first three really, really fast. Yeah. Um, well, I, my, my problem is, as I've said on other episodes was, was not that I didn't want to read it, but that there was, I, it was like an, <laughs> I just felt the fear of like, am I going to go spend $500 on this comic book today? Because <laughs> yeah. if I've read volume two, I would have come home, read it immediately, <laughs> gone back, read volume three. So I just felt like I need to wait for this to wrap up and then yeah. start getting like omnibus editions or something. That is a great idea. I have, uh, in fact, volumes one, two, and three are in year one. And I think, uh, you know, uh, four, five, six are in year two. And so they're currently on seven. So year three as a hardcover omnibus will come out soon. I, I'll stop there in terms of the summary, because I want to get into kind of like my personal love of this. Um, it, because I've referenced it so much and people have asked me, like, <laughs> why do you like this, this story so much? Here's, here's why. Um, you know, I, I, I came into the story via the East of East of West, the world one shot that I mentioned. I highly recommend if you're curious about this, this series, start with that because it really sets up a lot of the mythology of, of, of um, you know, the different country, you know, the, the new countries of the United States, how the, uh, you know, what goes into that, you know, where the timeline starts and stops. It was really instructive and it actually, it gave me, it, it gave me a really deep sense of the world building. So when I started volume one, I was invested already. Like I, I knew a lot of these things. So it made way more sense to me. Um, the world one shot also has like a little mini story with the, uh, the horseman. So you get a, a flavor for kind of the, kind of the, mm-hmm. the craziness of how, you know, the story works. And it's a little confusing because that little one shot story drops you in, like, I think around volume three. So you're not quite sure, but it doesn't matter. It just kind of gives you a flavor for what to expect. 
And it's uh, so if you're like, well, am I going to like the art? Am I going to like the style? Or, you know, like, what do I, what, you know, is this going to be too violent, not violent enough? That little mini story gives you a really kind of good idea of, of what to expect. It gives you kind of, you know, some of the, the, the humor. And it's not like, this is not a serious, you know, a totally serious story all the way through. It's really well balanced. There's some really good humor. There's, there's crazy violence. There's crazy, you know, um, mythology, but it really dials into the Western tropes a lot. It dies into the, dials into the sci-fi tropes. In well, fact, Oh, oh, I'm really glad you brought up the the world of, um, because it's, when you say one shot, I mean, it's literally like a single issue, correct? It is a single issue that was meant to be exactly what, how I discovered it, which is like, Hey, we want more people to read this. We're going to create this because this is such a sprawling, um, story. And in fact, I would say if you like game of Thrones, you will like this. There's so many parallels to game of Thrones in terms of the political intrigue, the, you know, the warring factions, the, the, you know, the, the backstabbing, the, uh, you know, like the nuances. Uh, all of that is very very present because all these basically all all the tensions being ratcheted up between all these different countries and people and and characters to get us to the apocalypse and then the kind of the over the the looming question is are all the you know is the world going to end because of all this or is somebody going to prevent it because they did the right thing at the right time and so you kind of like that's sort of the that's kind of the you know the the oncoming storm throughout this whole thing. But there's so many amazing mini stories and subplots and and like I mean just like every every you, know, you could get like a character three levels down who's just as interesting as Littlefinger, you know. And you're just like, yeah. well, I, what's his story or her story? So it's it's really worth getting the world because it sets all this up for you and it really kind of talks through. You know, it gives you like a little mini a mini you know bio of how each country was formed and why and um, you know, who, the, who the players are. In that sense, uh, does it does it work as sort of the world of ice and fire, where it's a reference guide where you yes. can go back? Okay, yeah, but it's I mean it's not clearly as long. I mean, world of ice yeah. fire is huge. This is just like a single, like, you know, thirty page, you know, single comic issue. But yeah, very, very, very similar. And it and you may say, well, is it going to spoil anything? No, it it doesn't really. It really just it drops you into that world. So by the time you read volume one, you're you're invested in the character. You kind of know who to expect and who's going to pop up. So like when they show you a character for the first time, you're like, oh, that's that guy. And you have just an easier time tracking the story. So I love that. Um, but honestly, oh, well, before I get to this, the other thing that really works well is, is that it's, you know, we've seen so many times people try to do a mashup of Western and fantasy or Western and sci-fi and fail miserably. And as a huge fan of the Western genre, I have been, I've been craving somebody to get it right. And oh my God, this gets it right. This fuses sci-fi and Western in a way that is so, it, 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 it's the you know it's the sum of the the sum of the parts is stronger than each you know what is what's that that old adage like um, <laughs> the, you know what I'm, the uh, the yeah the whole is uh, greater than the sum of its parts yeah so what's what's really interesting is that Hickman found a way to make you know like the sci-fi aspects of it only enhance the western aspects of it even more and vice versa and it's like it's I don't know how they did that and it's it's especially interesting considering that because the way I understand this is that Hickman and Dragata have a perfect partnership. It's not like Hickman writes everything and just hands it to Dragata. Hickman goes to Dragata and goes, what do you want to draw today? And they, they go back and forth. And between the two of them, they kind of craft each issue around their interests and kind of, you know, there's, a, there's clearly like a, a world Bible they're sort of following or an outline they're following. But like, there's an issue that's in it. And Dragata has even mentioned that you may have even been the panel you were at. Dragata said there was an issue where Hickman just said, just do whatever you want. And Dragata drew an entire issue that was just there was no there was no dialogue at all. It was just like it was an it was like an assassination issue, and uh, he just drew the whole thing, and it was amazing. 
So it's, it was really a great partnership. So it's amazing they're able to come up with a cohesive story in that way. And it's even more amazing they're able to fuse the Western and sci-fi genres in a way that just is so satisfying. But the real reason that I'm, I mean, all that's true. And all that would get me hooked into this anyway. But the, the cherry on top for me personally, like I grew up in Western South Dakota. So I have a lot of exposure and appreciation for American Indian culture. And, and it's, and you know, there's a lot of tribes have had a lot of hard times. You always kind of wonder like, what if, you know, what if something, you know, what if we hadn't put them all on reservations, you know, as, 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 as white settlers, what if we hadn't, what if we allowed them to flourish and kind of choose their own way? And this gives you a, a, an answer to that what if. And it, I really like what they do with the Endless Nation. I will say this, in volume one, you really don't get to see a lot of the Endless Nation at all. In fact, the world, you know, the East and West world one shot sets up kind of, you know, how they come to be. But what you do find out is that they're highly, highly technologically advanced. That's the big kind of change. So when, when they bound them all to like, you know, when Red Cloud created one Endless Nation, at some point in their history, they decided to abandon all of the mysticism. So like, you know, in, uh, in, uh, Indian spirituality and mysticism is all, um, is all kind of put aside. And there's like a very, very small subset who actually still believe in that. And the two who are accompanying death um, are like, you know, one of a limited few. The rest of them have turned into like, basically like it's, it's, it's like hyper technology and they just really leaned into that. So like they, all the technology that the other countries use, all the weaponry is usually crafted by the endless nation. So in volume one, you get to see a couple of them, you know, you get to see a couple of their representatives, but not, you don't, you don't really get a sense of their world until later on, but it's really cool. Cause like they're, they're talked about in kind of like this, this myth, mythological way. It's like the endless nation will, you know, like they're the, the, their sort of shadow is cast over everything. So it really yeah. builds up this tension when they finally do arrive. And when they arrive, like, you know, like the, the, the chief of the endless nations wearing like this really, you know, elegant suit, you know, like a really like, you know, like a Kingsman suit and he's got the tie on, he's got like this crazy sort of headset apparatus. And he's accompanied by like another guy who's got like, you know, like their, their soothsayer is basically a guy whose brain is connected to this like hyper AI. So like, that's, you know, that's their version of, of sort of soothsaying. Now it's just, it's just really freaking well done. And as, again, as somebody who's, who's a fan of Western culture, but also sort of a fan of, of, you know, the what if of the American Indian story, like I, that really sucked me in. I could, I could read an entire series just about the endless nation. And so it's, it's cool to see that infused into all these other really cool cultures that the, the logic of how, you know, after the meteor hits or the comet hits, like the logic of how everything kind of, you know, separates and, and, and kind of hashes out makes a lot of sense. Like you could see this actually <laughs> happening. And I'm like, that, that's intriguing to me. So all well, of that, in that is- way, does it, you know, does it turn into at some point, like a commentary on you know, races and tribes in America, or is that just sort of the background element that we, you know, we, we have in our heads when we read it. It does a little bit, but it's more, it, 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 if anything, it talks, as you get further into the series, they talk more about how they lost their way. You know, like we were once mm. a people of the, of the plains and the, and the, you know, the, and nature and, and, you know, mysticism. And now we're like, you know, everything is cold and technological. And, and there's a lot of discussion around, you know, like, you know, how they lost their way. Was that a good idea? You know, how do they, how do they find their way? And, you know, where, what is their place in the world now? You know, they're largely, uh, for the most of the series, they're largely benign. They don't really, they don't create an alliance with any country right away. You know, as, as, as war starts to break out amongst some of these, these territories, like they stay largely out of it. Um, 
at some point that might change and then the repercussions for that are, are huge but like they try to stay above it all because they're you know they've really surrendered themselves to like this sort of technological utopia and it's, so it's just really cool to see that you know that twist in it and you don't really get a sense of like I think at that point, like all the in- interdependent tribes have kind of have uh, melted, you know, have melted, potted out, if that's a term. Um, <laughs> so you don't, and you don't really get a sense of like, there, there's not like a racist element or anything in that way. It's, it's, it's pretty clear that they're the, they are the heavy hitters of this world. And so everybody else is kind of like, you know, trying to, trying to exist in their shadow, which is kind of cool. Anyway, that's- I've talked way too long about this. No, no, no. I, that's uh, I, I would say, you know, just as the person who's only read volume one, um, it is, it's really interesting to hear you talk about, to tell this story again, because when we've covered East of West in previous episodes, it, it's been in our, when we used to do catch up episodes of like, what are you reading? You know, so you would be on volume five or six or whatever. And um, I understand more of how you <clears throat> had that complete world in your head because mm-hmm. you'd read that, that single issue uh, East of West, the world. Mm-hmm. Um and I would say, like, if you just pick up volume one, it very much seems like a sci-fi Western. You know, mm-hmm. it almost seems like now, granted, I haven't seen the show, but it seems like that Westworld sort of genre. Of, mm-hmm. You know, it's uh, yeah. yeah, because and, and you know, it, I, all those uh, uh, there are just all these echoes of Western tropes, you know, the death confronting um, that that politician that he does. Like, I, I don't know if that's it's the uh, president of America. And it happens right away too. So yeah. it's like he goes and confronts for, again, for reasons of vendetta, he goes and confronts the yeah. president of America and it's, yeah, it's, really which is fun. very much that feeling of like the man in black, the stranger who comes to town and then he's going around settling scores, you know, yeah. one by one and you're, you're going, okay, where's this leading? And then as I recall, there is a, the big part of the PRA or the, or maybe they're actually in mainland China um, at the end of this, it ends with a, a pretty big cliffhanger. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or at least a big dramatic uh, scene where you're, you're, I mean, it was, <laughs> like I said, it was difficult for me not to run to the store and buy oh, every volume. Dude, this is, I, I say, I sound like a broken record, but this is yet another image series where each volume of the trade paperback feels like a perfectly self-contained season of a TV show. Yep. For sure. Like even to the point where at the end of volume one, like I think, I think some of the characters are even like riding into the sunset and you're like, and you almost just see the credits wrong yeah. but you're like but it's but it sets up so much more we're like, like oh yeah like there is a huge uh finale kind of climax thing followed by a cliffhanger and that right off into the sunset and you, you're going oh shit yeah <laughs> i yeah. gotta see the rest of this oh uh, dude it's so <clears throat> it's so good if they don't make this a tv show at some point i mean it's it'll be very difficult because it would be expensive but man it would be incredibly satisfying i just i this is i would say in my top three favorite series of all time period yeah. Like just straight up. Well, and it, um, I mean, we can't say enough about the art and we don't need to go, you know, unless there's anything you want to say about specifically here, because we have talked about Nick Dragata's art several times. Yeah. And I, yeah. I know in our episode number 43 uh, is where I recapped last year's uh, San Diego comic con, where I talked about that panel where Nick said some very cool things. Um, and I think it's in our second episode ever, which we numbered, 0.5 where we started out having this huge comic book discussion that got cut off. But I think uh, listeners, if they were curious, could go back to that or episode number one and find a lot about East of West. Yeah. We've talked about. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So what did <laughs> my long winded review aside, what did you pick this week, sir? Because we still oh, have to get your boogie. I, <clears throat> okay. I got, we got to take a breath for this one. All right. Breathe in the, breathe in the funk. 
Breathe out the jive. Um, I texted you <laughs> on Tuesday night and said, I've never been more excited to talk about a book. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and actually uh, talking about East of West got me like, I was so excited about that. I've kind of like pushed my book out of my head. Oh no, uh, no, it's fine. I mean, uh, I had a, uh, um, anyway, I, the book I chose is uh, the book Mary Wept Over the Feet of Jesus. Oh, oh so, my God. <laughs> um, oh, my God. Chester Brown. Um, it is a drawn and quarterly title. I uh, got a signed copy uh, at the drawn and quarterly booth last uh, San Diego Comic Con, and I mentioned it probably in that same uh, episode, number 43. Mm-hmm. Have you read this? I have not. Okay. It has been it has been one of those books. Every time I'm in a shot, always there. You always see it. You know, it's it's like it's one of the drawn and quarterly like heavy hitter titles. You know, it's like one of their greatest hits. It's always been on my pull list, but it always gets pushed down for something else. And I've always wanted somebody just to give me like get me excited about this. So I finally just grabbed the damn thing and add it to my library. So this is I'm so excited about oh, this. Oh, so wait, you have it, but you have not No, 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 I don't oh, have it. Yet. You're I've looking for you're looking for that reason to push you. Yeah, over yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um so you so then right after I texted you with that, you texted me about this um kind of kooky biblical scholar that you had been reading. What was his name? Oh, John Marco Allegro. Okay, who has uh the his theory is about um, the uh, wafers of communion originally being uh, psilocybin. <laughs> he, he has a whole well, you, yes, he has that, but he has like a whole thing that basically, uh, and it's largely largely uh, controversial. But he has a a theory based on the Dead Sea Scrolls that like a lot of modern Christianity can be tied back to mushroom cults. Um, around <laughs> the time of hunter gatherers, so it's like it's for anybody interested in like you know really kind of dissecting what you know where religion comes from or where belief comes from like it, go at least google the guy you know like there's some interesting things there to consider and again highly controversial but it's it's interesting stuff he um so i you texted me about that and then i texted back in like all caps you are going to love this pick <laughs> exactly <laughs> i yeah. mean it was it was one of those things where i um <clears throat> I, so i had gotten this last july and uh had flipped through it um and knew, you know, it was one of those things where I, I, I couldn't tell if it was going to be a, a long read that was going to take a while. And so I was sort of putting it off for that or if it, or if I felt the opposite, like, oh yeah, I'll breeze through that in an afternoon and I'll just save it for a day when I'm really like right in the mood. And I don't, I don't know what put me in the mood this week. I know I kept shuffling it uh, in the TBR pile, you know, specifically thinking of our show, like when can I read this? It's the, you know, the best impact mm-hmm. to, to discuss. Um so the the subtitle is a prostitution and religious obedience in the Bible, mm. and you know when I flipped through it, it is every page of the illustrations are a very simple four panel layout, um, almost like uh, almost like sort of a newspaper strip. They're not in a, um, a horizontal line; it's two and two. Um, it is a very narrow book, and it's it's you know, I mean, it's normal book height, but it sort of looks short because it's, it's not very wide. Um, so you get four panels on the left page and four panels on the right page. And the drawings are really simple, but incredibly effective. And one of the things that really stood out to me is these very subtle distinctions he makes to differentiate the characters. So if you think we're, you know, he's telling stories from the Bible, 
um, with people that that have names that are unfamiliar to us. Um, even though I'm looking at the Cain and Abel story here, which are names that are very familiar to us, um, just the way he has subtly drawn Cain and Abel's faces is different. And then he, you know, um, the way that he draws Abel as more muscular than Cain is really interesting. And it's not, you know, there's nothing exaggerated about it. It's just, uh, they will have different styles of beard or they will have a differently Mm -hmm. shaped nose. And you'll notice he keeps that up through every panel of the story. Wow. So, Just in these tiny, tiny little, uh, you know, like iconographic ways, Mm -hmm. he is telling you which which character is which so that he can keep the dialogue very, very simple. Mm -hmm. You know, that way he doesn't have to say, because it's all black and white, so he doesn't have to constantly call characters by their names or anything Mm -hmm. like that. You know, and so there will be stories where there are the... um, the three slaves, the the parable of the talents he retells. And so he, you know, there's a very distinctive way each slave is portrayed, or there will be one uh, that's about, you know, a group of women. And so the, the same thing, and it is just uh, deceptively simple. So <clears throat> reading this and, you know, I, I read you the subtitle of prostitution and religious obedience. The way I read that was um, when I picked it up was that these were just going to be sort of, short little four or five panel, you know, or sorry, not four or five panels, four or five pages stories of prostitution. That was really what I saw. I saw the religious obedience as being part of the prostitution. Okay. I think Chester Brown does as well, but in a different way. So as I've already mentioned, the story of Cain and Abel is told at the beginning. Um, And it is a pure obedience story. Mm -hmm. Uh, Adam tells Cain and Abel to pay attention um, and follow the laws because when Adam and Eve disobeyed Yahweh, they were thrown out of the garden of Eden and now they have to farm for their living. And it is extremely hard, grueling work, and they don't always have the crops every year. Um, so Cain is very obedient to his father and to the laws of Yahweh. And Abel is not Abel says, why aren't we eating animals? They're everywhere. So Abel builds a fence and he starts keeping sheep there and, you know, he's killing sheep and eating them. And uh, one day, um, uh, Adam brings Abel some bread that Eve has baked for him. And Cain asks, why are you going to let him disobey you and reward him for this? And then later on, uh, Abel sees Cain sacrificing some of the harvest to uh, Yahweh. And Abel says, that's a good idea. I should sacrifice some of my meat. So he sacrifices a lamb. Um, God shows up and tells uh, Cain, well, tells Abel, thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for the meat. Uh, and tells Cain, I reject your sacrifice. <laughs> mm. um, so, you know, Cain can't figure out why is God angry with me? And then uh, Cain eventually kills Abel um, and says, you know, God shows up and uh, God and Yahweh are the same thing. If, if you weren't aware of that. Um, and, uh, you know, Cain is saying, I obeyed you. I obeyed all your rules. Like, why is he the beloved son? Um, and you can, if you know other Bible stories, you can see how that sort of relates to the prodigal son, which is another story that's retold here. And so it jumps from that story into a story that I was not familiar with um, about Tamar, um, who 
it's a a very, I mean, it's not complicated, but there are a lot of details. I I don't want to go through it, but um, uh, she's, um, I guess, uh, betrothed or married to one brother. Uh, Yes, she's married. Um, Her husband, Er, dies. And according to custom, she must marry the brother. And then that brother will give her the son that her husband should have done. Um, But it's, so there's this, you know, this complicated thing of like, uh, religious <laughs> law and custom in that and, and how it relates to sexuality specifically. So that's like, we get into it in, in the second story, we're talking about this and there's prostitution element. Um, <clears throat> I was not familiar with this. So I just read it as, Oh, okay. This is this story right out of the, uh, right out of the Bible. I thought at this point, Chester is just telling us, you know, here are simple stories, almost like mini comics out of the Bible. And then after that, it's the story of um, Rahab and another prostitution story. And this one I was a little bit familiar with, um, or at least I'd heard elements of it. So again, I just thought, oh, right, right. Okay. He's just, you know, graphically depicting these stories out of the Bible. This is great. Uh, And then he tells the story of Ruth and I thought, that's pretty cool. And um, I, I, you know, I, I had some <laughs> some stuff going on this week, so this these stories were just very touching to me in the simple way that they approached relationships and sexuality in these old stories, and uh, I, you know, the theme of obedience was there, but I didn't. It, it wasn't really resonating with me. You know, um, he tells the story of David and Bathsheba, uh, which is another one I was mostly familiar with. And maybe questioned a couple of the details in this one and thought, oh, okay, interesting. He tells this parable, the talents that Jesus told. And then he tells the the story of um, Mary of Bethany anointing Jesus's feet or washing his feet before his crucifixion. And this one I, I knew and I went, oh, wait a second. You know, I start questioning, uh, did she have a name? You know, and w- what's going on? Um, and... It turns out that he, so he, he believes that I'll get into why this is, but he believes that Mary of Bethany and Mary Magdalene are the same person. Hmm. And in, I guess in one of the uh, books of the gospel, uh, it's identified as a prostitute that washes uh, Jesus's feet. And so there's a subtle little argument going on here. And <laughs> I sort of, you know, that's where I, I, that's probably where I picked it up when he gets to this story of Mary of Bethany, but it is oddly powerful to me. Just this really simple story of a prostitute washing uh, the feet of Jesus and weeping over his feet as she did it. And then using her hair to dry his feet. I mean, I, I it almost brought me to tears for, for sure. Wow. Um, just, I, and again, I had other stuff going on. <laughs> I was in a headspace that made this like the perfect story to read, but um, it, it, you know, I, it was, it was a big deal. Um, and there is, uh, it, um, <laughs> how do I describe this? Uh, <laughs> I, I'm not, I'm, I'm flipping through it because I'm wondering, there was a part where I, I became really suspicious of, uh, Chester's telling of these stories. So after the Mary of Bathsheba, he tells a story of Matthew actually getting the idea to like one of the things he needed to do to write in the gospel. So this is an imagined story of uh, Matthew is trying to figure out 
how to explain um, something in his book of Jesus's life, or you know, his book being Matthew, the the gospel, mm-hmm. uh, and how Matthew runs across a uh, young girl uh, in the street, and her name is Tamar, and he all of a sudden like make you know connects all these dots with the story that Chester Brown has told earlier in the book. And so then you see, oh, wait, Chester Brown is, has told these stories specifically to, to connect some dots that Matthew is also connecting. Um, and uh, so there is <laughs> so the, the book itself. I'm sorry that I'm stuttering. I feel like I always do this. The book itself is about 170 pages long. And they're basically all these sort of mini comics that tell those, those stories that I've told to you right now. Um, but after that, <clears throat> there is probably a hundred pages of afterward and footnotes. Whoa, really? So I had known, you know, when I had picked it up and flipped through it, I thought, oh, this is cool. He's going to tell a story and then he's going to footnote it. So you kind of get the full story. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I alluded to, what I realized is Chester Brown is making an argument. And I, at one point, you know, I flipped back to the afterward and sort of referenced the the page that what he had to say about the the pages in the story I just read. And that was when the, the light went on in my head. And when it like probably literally the moment that I texted you wow. like, Oh my God, this is a piece of uh, critical theory. <laughs> mm. Chester Brown is making an argument about prostitution in the Bible. That is really sophisticated and so amazingly told in this really simple way. Mm. And that, so what he's saying is that there was a, and it's almost like this is almost like a spoiler of the story. So I'm going to try to be delicate about it because I think anyone who's interested in the history of the Bible and sort of arguments about it, and especially the way that the Bible treats sexuality should read this because, um, there is, he is showing in that in that chapter of Matthew figuring this out that Matthew uh, shows a we're all you know like there's a common trope in the Bible that we make fun of which is like it's just lists of names you yeah, know it's always, yeah. so he you know he begat this guy and he begat this guy and they begat this girl and whatever and it's everybody's begatting everything <laughs> and there are so many genealogies told yeah but those are generally all patriarchal genealogy. You're right. Yeah. yeah. Until Matthew mentions these four or five women in discussing Jesus's mother, Mary. And Chester's argument is that Matthew was making a really subtle uh, gesture to signify that Mary was a prostitute. Mary, the mother of Jesus. Yes. Whoa. And not Whoa. <laughs> a virgin in the way that wow. we understand the word virgin, oh but God. a virgin in the understanding of the word to mean unmarried. Okay. Right, I, like I'm tingling because what you just described, like, A, your revelation, like you read through it and you enjoyed it, but then your revelation kind of after the fact, like that plus what you're actually like the argument he's making, like this is why I love this medium so damn much. Yeah. It is like you can make these kinds of points and do these kind of subtle things and like, Oh God, I just, I, I, I'm going to, I am immediately going to go grab this today because I want, I need to have this now. Um, Yeah. I mean, I love that so much. It's funny because that is probably like, it could be argued like 
is the most controversial point or something. Mm -hmm. When you read this really careful afterward that he has written, um, you know, it's, I was, I was torn reading that. Like I felt like, well, is he explaining too much? Mm -hmm. You know, but it's not that what he's doing is saying, you know, he, he depicted these stories in this way and they are, they are touching and they get you to see the characters in a new way. And then this afterward is this really completest version of don't think that I'm maligning your religion or, uh, telling these stories out of school. He's citing all the scholars and translations and non canonical books that tell these stories too. And he's going through it very carefully Mm. and, you know, with all these block quotes of saying, you know, this is how this author saw this relationship. And, but, but in addition to that, he has made like some original scholarly (laughs) decisions here. Mm -hmm. And that's partly why he's chosen these specific stories to tell. Mm -hmm. And, it was just fascinating to read that. Oh, <laughs> I mean, I just can't get over it. It, it is so, uh, it's so interesting. And it, in fact, in the middle of this afterward, which like I said, is, is almost a hundred pages. He says he, he, to counter someone else's argument, he says, I, there are two things I would cite from the Bible to counter two stories. I would cite from the Bible to counter this argument. Uh, one is this story, blah, blah, blah. And the other is the book of Job. If you're not familiar with it, I've illustrated it here. So in the middle of the afterward, oh my <laughs> God. illustrated the story of Job to back up his argument wow. <laughs> about biblical obedience and how that argument backs up his argument about prostitution. I mean, it is so... <laughs> beautiful and sophisticated. And when I was wandering around the comic book store yesterday, I was doing it specifically like, can I find anything that magical again? Like I want more of this. Yeah. So yeah. there are biographical details that are uh, fascinating to this. I knew I have not read it, but I, I knew that Chester Brown's previous book was called paying for it and is a story of his relationship with prostitutes. Um, and so he even tells that sort of as a disclosure at the end of this. He's like, Here, here's what you need to know about me. I consider myself a Christian, um, but I don't believe in these parts of the gospel. I believe in this. And I have had a relationship with, like, I have only been with one single prostitute for the last 11 years. And mm-hmm. this is what that relationship is like. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, he's coming to this from, like, he's you know, fully transparent about how he's coming to this issue. Yeah. That's Um, great. I appreciate that. And you get that feeling of like, he's probably trying to make this argument to maybe justify a little bit of how he feels about prostitution, Mm -hmm. but so much of it rings true when you like, he has done such a great job of picking these stories out. And even in the afterward, you know, all those places I pointed out where I was a little, like I started to get suspicious about like, do I remember all these details? He explains why the details have changed in his story because he'll say, well, yes, but in this translation of the same story that was in a book that wasn't included in the Bible, this is why this happens. And that makes more sense because it's a more, you know, the, the parable of the talents, the way you've heard it doesn't really make sense because in that parable, uh, the outcome for two of these slaves is exactly the same. And, and it doesn't make any sense to tell a parable uh, where two people have the same outcome. Of course, you would have, you would have three different, uh, you know, examples and then three different outcomes. And so then he says, well, so in this translation, if you look this up, you'll find out that this was how it was originally written. And then they probably censored it when they told it in Matthew. Okay. So, 
you know, so it's like, he's done all this research to like, he's obviously read the Bible and gone, that's a weird way to tell that story. And then he's done the research to show like, Oh wait, yeah, my instinct was right. That is a weird way to tell it because it was originally told this way. And it's just so interesting and fascinating. Um, yeah, I, I can't say enough good things about it. You know, well, let me and, uh, let me jump in real quick. Yeah, please so, do. As, I, you were, as you were talking, I've been looking up Chester Brown, and I feel ashamed for not knowing his career more in depth. Right. And I, I just I shall now. Too. Well, and he's like he's been doing it for a while. Apparently, he's had different thematic periods. Um, he's been you know around the alt comic scene for a while. Yeah. But I, apparently, since the late '90s, he has been known for his detailed annotations. And he's also somebody who goes back and alters and reformats older works. So mm-hmm. he's constantly sort of rethinking his pat. I love that because he's like, you know, people rag on George Lucas for that, but I love an artist who constantly kind of goes back and rethinks. Because at the end of the day, art and especially art in this format is not meant to be the world as you see it. It's meant to be the world as the artist sees it. And that may be true. It may be distorted. It may be through, it's all through their lens. So being able to see and understand religion and religious context through his eyes, and especially given his, his personal experience, as you mentioned, like he, you know, he's had a relationship with a prostitute, like that encapsulating that into a book and then having him not only give you that sort of slice or that, that lens, but then explain why, he sees it that way. Like that's God, that's satisfying. That is so satisfying. Um, Yeah. And it's the art, the way you can use the art to, to manipulate that thinking, you know, like the the way, like, as I described, as I was having this experience going, huh? Okay. So, you know, I mean, I, I'm not like a Bible scholar, but I've heard this story before and I don't really remember these details. Like just to have those things start throwing me off. Yeah. Was, was perfect. Like he was doing exactly in this very, very simple, like, you know, four panels per page format, putting that doubt in my head that I remember the story correctly, but then he's explaining it later. You know, he sees it as his job to make this scholarly interpretation and and argument, not just to plant doubts, you know, not, he's not just sort of, um, yeah, spraying doubt everywhere. Uh, which was, which was really fascinating. So I, I keep using the word fascinating. I mean, I was obviously just, just, you know, mind blown on this thing. Well, you have, you have sold a copy. I, and I'm glad, I'm kind of glad I waited because I like, I like going into it knowing that there's all this extra context. Like that just makes me all the more excited. It's interesting too, as I was in floating world yesterday, um, they have, they have a shelf dedicated to all things humanoids, essentially. And there's more, they had, they had Jodorowsky titles that I'd never heard of, but they had something there called deconstructing Inkle. So one of my favorite books and one that I'm going to get into at some point in a future episode soon is just the Inkle by Jodorowsky and Mobius. But I almost want to get this deconstructing Inkle first because that is such a complicated, it's, it's one of the most, (laughs) it's one of the seminal graphic novels of all time. And like, it's, I, I feel like I need to get that as much as I understand it. I want to get that to, to hash through the themes, the characters, like really kind of dissect what's there. And I almost think that that, you know, kind of that and what you see Chester do at the, you know, in the appendices, if you will, of, of this book, that almost needs to be, I, and we try to do it on this show. You know, we try to break down these things and give extra context and then hopefully in, in, in a way, get you to read them and, and increase our own appreciation of them. But I almost, I feel like there's a, a class of graphic novel now that, that almost requires that, you know, to really 
get into the, especially if it comes from the author's point of view, that's, that's incredible. It's like going to a gallery and having the artist standing right there going, well, here's what I was thinking when I made this. And here's the, you know, here's the thing, like, that's such a richer experience. And I know you can't have that every time, but man, that, that to me is where this, this medium really shines is when you can yeah. get that perspective and then why and like you can immediately it's almost like a Q&A after the fact like tell us you know where you what was going through your mind when you made this like that's I oh I love that so much yeah I, I'm I'm sort of torn thinking about it now it, you know is was this literally the best format to sort of split the book in half you know where mm-hmm. half is the comic and then half is the afterward I wonder if it would have been as effective if he had had notes on each chapter after the story was told mm-hmm. um, to where, you know, so that maybe my, my radar wouldn't have gotten, you know, like I wouldn't have detected so many blips, you know, like if I, if yeah. I read a story and then read what he had changed on it, would I have thought, Oh, okay. I see. I see. He's ch- making some changes, but because I, I didn't want to tell it to you this way, but when my radar went off at one point, I flipped into the, or I guess I did say that I did flip into the afterward and sort of read a little bit of the argument, you know, um, before I read the math, his Matthew chapter. So when I got to the Matthew chapter, I knew exactly where he was going. I was like, I get it. Okay. So that's what Chester's doing. Um, but I, you know, I, I actually think it, it just sort of works that way. Like you're, you're aware of this afterward. I mean, unless you just literally buy the book and don't flip through it, you're going to notice that half of it is just written words, (laughs) you know? So it does serve that purpose of like, I can just flip to the, you know, flip to the back and, and see what section he's referencing. And I, I, uh, I, I, you know, I'm torn, but I love the way he did it. So I don't, you know, I don't think there's right or wrong there. It's yeah. I mean, it's, it's a book that I would love to have a, like a proper book club on. So I could just bounce oh. all these ideas <laughs> off people um, because so many of that, so much of that resonates with sort of how I experienced uh, Christianity when I was, you know, a Christian and that, that feeling of like, I, you know, I, this, this, uh, this split between obedience and love is a, is a very interesting problem in the in the bible you know mm-hmm. and in the stories mm-hmm. and in the faith that people keep you know and brown's argument is clearly that like all these parables uh the cain and abel story the prodigal son um the these are parable or these are stories like to show you that obedience is not the, the highest law you know <laughs> the laws were written by men Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. all that the Christian experience is supposed to be is about love. And that, that is really <sighs> Brown's biggest argument. And that is a thing that I have, you know, felt all of my, you know, like reaching back into my teenage years. So all of my adult life, I have, that's, that's a thing I've always connected to. And, and it's a thing that when people become too, uh, you know, like, what do you want to, what do you want to call it? Like, well, they're too, <laughs> let's bring up Scientology again. Like the thing we <laughs> keep seeing about Scientology is that, I mean, there's an interesting thing in all the, all the research and, and, you know, reading and, and listening and watching that you and I have done on so many documentaries yeah. is that the problem is that these people will not allow their, uh, their book of law to change at all. Yeah. So they're literally washing windows with newspaper and vinegar because that's what, 
this idiot sci-fi writer told them to do in the fifties yeah. and he wrote a memo about it. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, there's so many parts in that Leah Remini show where they just show you the document. Like this is how to feel about reporters. Yeah. This is how to feel about the government. You know, and these are things that like a man who'd had a mental break, like <laughs> wrote these dumb memos and people are following them to the letter this day. And, you know, that's a thing that, uh, Christianity to its credit does not really have that's the ongoing conversation with all the denominations and, and what canonically appears in the Bible. And, you know, these are arguments and conversations essentially about what we believe, you know, what Christians believe. Um, So I I just really sympathized with a lot of Brown's arguments. Now, not, not all of it. Yeah. um, And you don't have to, I mean, exactly. I I love that point. I mean, it, it should go without saying, but like, let's be honest, like you're not, you're not ever meant to, especially when it comes to like, you know, religious dissections, like the whole point is not to be convinced to hold, you know, hold you know, soup to nuts on whatever somebody's like, take the parts you like, you know, let it impact your perception on things. And, you know, maybe it expands your awareness or expands, maybe it gives you another twist or another lens to look at something through. Like you don't have to go, well, this is all true. You know, it's again, it's an artist's job is to show you the world as they see it. And maybe in doing so, it expands your own perceptions. Yeah. You know, it's like taking a drug without taking a drug. You know, it's like taking, it's like, you know, doing mushrooms or ayahuasca or, or even cannabis, but you don't have the, you know, you can get high through the the lens of somebody else like that. I mean, that, that to me kind of really sums up this medium. It's like you get to experience the world through somebody's eyes and, and, and get a perspective that you never had before. And you can put it on your shelf and pull it back out anytime. And it, it that perception may change. Your perception of that work may change. You know, it's like, yeah. it's, and, and what a great way. I mean, th- is there a better format? I'm going to, I'm sounding like I'm a, a, we're on a damn telethon. Like, (laughs) but really, is there a better format to examine religion through? I mean, honestly, like that's, I mean, you and I have a lot of really kind of similar opinions and sort of, curiosities, curiosities, yeah, 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 around religion, which is great. But like, I, I love this format or this medium to kind of dissect and get through then and think through things in an interesting way and see how that matches up with where we are as a, as a society and as a world now versus then. And God, it's such a, that's so fulfilling. I don't, I don't want to say anymore. You, you summed it up. No. And what you just said now, I think puts a great period on the end of that sentence. Like this is, so it's a Mary wept over the feet of Jesus by Chester Brown. It's on drawn and quarterly. Uh, Taylor talked about East of West by Jonathan Hickman and Nick Dragata um taylor where can people find this podcast you can find us anywhere podcasts are i was i was gonna say sold anywhere you get your podcast apple Podcasts, stitcher google play pocket casts uh soundcloud wherever you are is where we are you can also find us online at findusthere.org we're gonna have some new coffee and comics updates coming soon in the meantime you can find me uh on instagram and twitter i am by by taylor trask on those uh, networks and where can they find you? I am at Hey Todd a on those networks. And that is a great lead into something we wanted to talk about, which is um, so if you're listening to this, like the week it is released, which would be April, something yep. I don't <laughs> 18th, April of 2018. The world um, is still spinning. We are all still here. We still yeah. have electricity. So if, if future generations are, are looking back on what life was like, right here we so, are. We are the, so we released this on new comic book day, which is Wednesdays. Uh, the next Wednesday, um, we're telling you in advance, we, the, we're all going to discuss vision 
Yes. The, uh, collection of Vision that we talked about getting on Amazon. You might want to check there. We got it for 99 cents, I believe. Um, but if not, go to your local comic book shop, buy the complete series of Vision. Um, and this is our lead in to talking about Avengers Infinity War. So next week, um, we're going to read Vision. And then the week after that, we're going to read Infinity Gauntlet. Please uh, send your questions to us on Twitter and uh, Instagram. That would be very cool. And we will post about it during the week and talk about it on the show next week. Thank you, Taylor. Thank you, Todd. Thank you, everyone else, for listening. We will see you next week. Bye. Happy reading. Bye.